Our second lesson comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 21, and we will be reading verses 1 through 14 this morning. Again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along with me as I read today from God's holy and inspired word. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to hold the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Well, as we arrive at the final chapter of John's Gospel, we do so with some background information in hand that comes to us from other Gospel writers. As we have noted throughout our study, John has produced this work a good while after the other Gospels have already circulated. And he knows what the larger church has been informed of, so he does not feel compelled to rehearse that information, but he also knows what has been omitted. In other words, there may be some lingering questions or loose ends that he is moved to answer. For example, John does not include the Lord's instruction to the disciples before his death that once he's raised from the dead, he will go before them into Galilee, but the Gospel writer Matthew does share that. 
But then Matthew says nothing about that time spent in Galilee other than his closing five verses where Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission. Likewise, John does not reiterate the encounter between Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Gospel writer Luke finds important. We assume that Luke does not retell it because it's not necessary. It has been adequately passed on to the greater church through others like Luke. And Luke is the primary source of the moment of the Lord's ascension, both in his gospel and the beginning of his book of Acts. John does not recount the ascension as an event per se. He makes mention of it, though, in Jesus' post-resurrection conversation with Mary Magdalene when he tells her to stop clinging to him because he has not yet ascended to his Father. What we find in common across the Gospels is a consistent basic narrative surrounding the resurrection, even as each one provides certain details that are unique to them, but taken together they give us a fuller picture of what occurred that day and in the days to follow. So last week we dealt with one of the post-resurrection events that is found exclusively in John's Gospel, the interchange between Jesus and Thomas. Today we look at another, as Jesus reveals himself to some of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and next week we will focus on the encounter between Jesus and Simon Peter. Now for reasons that are probably only fully understood by John, this encounter with Jesus by the Sea of Galilee serves as something of an epilogue to John's Gospel. There are those who believe that this chapter is a later addition to the Gospel, thinking that the closing verses of chapter 20 are the original conclusion. That argument would be more plausible if the earliest manuscripts that we have ended at chapter 20, but they do not. So, as a result, I think it is best to see in this final chapter John's desire to tie up some loose ends. Now, when this encounter with Jesus occurred, it cannot be nailed down definitively. All we know is that it happened between the exchange that Jesus had with Thomas eight days after the resurrection and 40 days later after the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. We might safely assume that this may have been about two weeks after the resurrection, simply because the disciples appear here to have reached a point of restlessness, and they decide that their time waiting for Jesus to appear to them again would be better spent by staying busy, doing what several of them knew best, which was fishing. Now, John offers no explanation for where four of the other disciples are or why they miss out on this encounter. And out of the seven disciples that are present, he only identifies five, himself and four others. But the episode begins when Simon Peter makes the announcement, I'm going fishing. Now, there are commentators who see in this statement an abandonment of the call to ministry, which is completely unwarranted. 
In the first place, that would suggest that all those who agreed to go with him were of the same mind, which would amount to kind of a wholesale mutiny simply because Jesus had not immediately appeared to them when they arrived in Galilee. But secondly, it is to ignore the fact that the need to feed one's family did not end with the resurrection. There are still bills to pay and obligations to keep. Being engaged in industry was expected of everyone. And so, as they are anticipating further contact with Jesus, but without a settled day and time, Peter decides to make good use of the time by doing what he does best. Now, this is a good word, I think, for any Christian who suffers under the impression that waiting to move is the best approach waiting to move until the Lord shows himself is kind of the way to walk the Christian life. The fact of the matter is that God has revealed enough of his will to every one of us that we should not insist upon some special revelation before we are obedient to what Christ has already revealed. We know in a similar vein that the Apostle Paul chastised Christians in Thessalonica for becoming a burden to the rest of the church Because they had stopped working, anticipating the imminent return of Christ. So instead of sitting around and waiting, Peter announces that he is going to fish and the others agree to join him. Their venture, however, proves to be fruitless. John then reports that just as day was breaking, before the sun was adequately risen, To see anything clearly, Jesus stood on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, about a hundred yards away from the boat, and calls out to the disciples, You don't have any fish, do you boys? And when they reply that they do not, he then tells them to cast their net once more on the right side of the boat, which they do, and their catch is enormous. Now, interestingly, this scenario is reminiscent of an earlier moment in their life with Christ. In fact, it was very early in their relationship with Jesus when the Lord used Simon's boat as a temporary pulpit to teach people by the sea. Peter and Andrew, James and John had experienced a fruitless night of fishing and they were busy repairing their nets and getting things ready for the next evening. Jesus was teaching, and no sooner do the disciples get everything ready for later than Jesus tells Peter to push out deeper, let down their nets for a catch. And though Peter protests that they had fished all night and that they'd caught nothing, because it is Jesus making the request, he agrees to do so. And the size of their catch was so enormous that it threatened to capsize their boat. And so they call for help from James and John who bring their boat alongside. And together, they're barely able to retrieve their catch. Well, in that instance, Peter shrinks back from Jesus in shame. Because he becomes aware of the holiness of Christ. And he's afraid because he knows the depth of his own sin. But it was at that moment that Jesus called them all to follow him in order that they might fish for men, and they dropped their nets and followed him. Now it is that earliest incident that probably jumps 
to John's memory now and he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And the response of Peter is now very different from that earlier encounter. Now Peter ties his outer garment up. He dives into the water in order to swim for shore that he might draw near to Christ. Which kind of raises the question, what has changed? At the beginning of their relationship with Christ, Peter had been introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, who indicated, we have found the Messiah. But Peter was not entirely convinced right out of the gate that following Jesus full-time was his true calling, which is why he was still fishing when Jesus used his boat for a floating pulpit. But when the Lord filled their boats with such an enormous catch, Peter had a reaction not entirely different from that of the prophet Isaiah when he caught sight of the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. Isaiah became instantly aware of just how sinful he was in the presence of Almighty God. And when the Lord produced such a large catch of fish, Simon Peter sensed that Jesus was more than a mere man. That he was in some sense divine and Peter was ashamed of his sinfulness. But since then, things have changed. Three years of observing Christ in ministry engaged in miraculous signs and wonders, has changed things. Three years of listening to Jesus' teaching has changed things. Three years of listening to Jesus pray to God the Father has changed things. Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law, has praised and chastised him, has broken bread with him, has washed his feet, has been crucified in his place, has been raised for his justification. And yet, how did Peter behave when questioned as to being one of Jesus' closest disciples? He denied even knowing the man, not once, but three times. Now, it seems like he would want to get as far away from Christ as possible. But there's one other thing that we know. Jesus has already appeared to Peter alone. We brought this up last week, saying that we don't have any record of this encounter. We don't know where it occurred or what was said in exchange. All we know is that Peter, occupying the role of leader among the original disciples, was given a private audience with the risen Lord, perhaps soon after Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene on Easter morning. Now, do you find it curious that we have no record of this moment? Is it a wonder to you that Peter himself does not offer some reflection on it? I'm not surprised. While Peter's denial of Christ was well publicized, so also is the public restoration between them, which we will look at in more detail next week. But consider the shame and the personal torment that Peter must have experienced after all of his bluster and boasting prior to Christ's arrest and trial and crucifixion. Peter was bragging that no matter what happened, he would never fail. All the others might, but I will not. That he would die with Jesus, and on and on he went. But those were hollow words when it became apparent that Jesus was not going to resist the authorities. 
And when Jesus was then crucified and dead and buried, can we imagine the sense of failure that washed over Peter? Matthew and Mark both report that when Peter heard the rooster crow the second time that the prophetic words of Christ came to his mind and he went out and wept bitterly. He was overcome with remorse. And I believe that one of the reasons we know nothing of that encounter between the two of them is because it was a very personal and private moment of restoration between Jesus and this one who would be called upon to lead. It is the Gospel writer Luke who offers some further insight on that night in question. And he reports that Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And I believe that the reason we have no record of what transpired privately between Peter and Jesus on that first Easter morning is because it was restorative in ways that are too spiritually intimate to sully with our prying eyes. But I do believe that Peter gives us a clue as to what that moment was like when he writes his first letter to the saints scattered across Asia Minor. At the end of chapter 5, and in chapter 5, he is addressing those who are called as elders. And after setting before them the best of advice on character and conduct, he acknowledges that times of trial and testing will indeed come He speaks of Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then he says this. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I believe that's a part of what took place on Easter morning between the two of them. And so when John declares it is the Lord, Peter dives into the water, makes his way to shore, not because he is still ashamed of what he had done less than a month ago, but because there has been some restoration and confirmation and strengthening that has already occurred between them. But when the other disciples manage to reach the shore with their miraculous catch, they discover that Jesus has been busy creating a fire upon which there are already some fish as well as bread. This too is reminiscent of a previous episode, for this is the same menu used in the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. And while the echo of that may be bouncing around in their heads, they can see that the purpose of this meal is one of fellowship between the Savior and these disciples of whom he has declared, You are my friends. John indicates that the resurrection is still something of a cognitive hurdle for the disciples. He conveys this with The statement, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
But phrased that way suggests that there was lingering doubt, but not doubt in an agnostic kind of way. Rather, it was still puzzling to them as to how this could be. And in that sense, their desire was to blurt out, Lord, is it really you? They didn't ask that because they knew that it was their master, but they still could not comprehend entirely how this was possible. Now again, we're not privy to the conversation that must have ensued over this meal, but perhaps we should think of it in much the same way as a family gathers for Thanksgiving dinner, and just as they are getting ready to take their seats, the eldest child who has been gone from home serving with the military in dangerous places overseas for the past four years is suddenly at the door surprising everyone, and joy fills the house. Because we can imagine the parents, oblivious to the food on the table, just looking at their son or daughter and saying over and over again, I just can't believe that you're here. I just can't believe it. Now part of the reason for these appearances of Jesus to the disciples is to drive home the reality of the resurrection. They may not be able to articulate how God brought it about. They may not be able to medically or physiologically explain the miracle of resurrection. They may not be able to metaphysically comprehend what transpired within the body of their Lord. But what they can never deny is that God did the impossible in raising Jesus from the dead. And when they are asked to explain how, they can say, I don't know. But what I do know is, I had breakfast with him a couple of weeks after Passover beside the Sea of Galilee. Now over time, those same disciples were able to point to the scriptures and give evidence as to how Jesus perfectly fulfilled the messianic prophecies and promises and how God was working in him to purchase our salvation through his shed blood. And while there were those who would take issue with their interpretations and their applications of Scripture, what caused people to wonder was the disciples' personal testimony of having spent time with the risen Lord. And when that personal testimony was eventually coupled with God's Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they became a powerful force that was hard to neutralize. The people who were directly responsible for engineering Christ's crucifixion were stymied by these same Galilean fishermen who displayed an uncommon boldness and erudition in defending their healing of a lame man by the power and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The Sanhedrin wanted the disciples to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, but it was hard to make their argument when the healed lame man was standing right there in front of them. The Bible says that they had nothing to say in opposition. So what did they do? They decided to create an executive order. They charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John responded to that by saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, the encounters that the disciples had with the risen Christ were so profound, so transformative, that they could not help but tell others of what they knew to be true. Now, does that describe us? Have we encountered the risen Lord in the pages of Scripture to such a degree that we know beyond all shadow of doubt that he has been raised from the dead. By the power of Christ's indwelling spirit, have we come to a place of true repentance, such that we see and understand the depth of our sin before the God of heaven, who is holy, holy, holy. Has that same spirit granted to us the necessary faith to embrace the atoning work of Christ, regenerating us to new life and filling us with a joy that is difficult to contain. Ah, beloved, if we have not yet surrendered to that gospel, if you have not, I invite you on this Lord's day to join the ranks of all the saints who have gone before us and receive the grace of God by responding in faith to the invitation of Christ, who bids one and all to come to him and break bread together. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer for a moment.